0: Colossae, and I'm calling the series In Christ, Finding Our Identity in the Supreme King. And that phrase, in Christ, appears over and over and over again in the letter to the Colossians. And and we've sort of turned a corner uh, now in in our study. The first uh, couple of chapters were about the supremacy of Christ and today we're gonna, we're going to be moving more into um, uh, surrender to uh, that supreme king. you know when when Paul wrote uh, the, the letter to the Colossians, or actually to, to any of the churches he wrote to, that letter was then carried to the church by a trusted Christian brother or sister in some cases. We think Romans uh, was was probably carried by Phoebe and then that letter carrier would also be the first one to read and explain that letter to the the people that it was written to. We know from Colossians chapter 4 that the letter carrier in this case was Tychicus. Tychicus. Kind of a it doesn't exactly roll off your tongue, but that's who did it. And uh, when he did, uh, it's it's likely that the Colossian Christians would have heard the letter uh, read straight through right, and then probably repeated with some comments made and uh, the point is that they they would have they would have heard and and captured the through line uh, that that Paul and Timothy were uh, establishing as they as they wrote this letter, and we can kind of be in danger of of losing. Uh, some of that when we, we break it into little sections with one section each week. So I want to do a little bit of a review sort of at a high level and uh, go over what we've, what we've seen so far in this, in this incredible letter. The letter began with Paul and Timothy praising the Colossian Christians for how the gospel was bearing fruit in their lives, in, in their uh, church right there, and, and in fact around the world. And then uh, Paul and Timothy then told them that they were praying for these Colossian Christians to walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the Savior who had brought them uh, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And then in our third week, we looked at the Christ hymn, one of my favorite sections uh, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, where. Uh, uh, Paul established that, that Christ is the supreme king of the universe. He created it. He sustains it. He, he came, he humbled himself and died in our place to reconcile us and, and really all of creation back to God. And then in our fourth week, Paul talked about this great mystery that had been hidden in ages past but was now being revealed Uh, even among the Colossian Christians. And that mystery, he said, was that the Messiah, and we take this for granted, the Messiah was for the Gentiles as well. An amazing truth that Paul just got all excited about when he he talked about it. it. It meant that for those who surrendered to King Jesus, He is actually in them. He is in them, and they are in him. And then last week, Lucas took us through uh, a a long passage. Sorry, Lucas, but thank you. Um, and, And that passage included an explanation of our identity in Christ. And we saw actually several of those in Christ statements in that section uh, we learn that we are rooted, we live, and we are built up in Christ. We have been filled, we've been made complete in Christ. We've died and been raised to new life in Christ. In Christ is who we really are. That's, that's our identity. So this week, we're going we're gonna to be in Colossians 3, uh, where Paul and Timothy begin talking about some of the practical outcomes of our identity in Christ. Colossians 3 is on page 951 of the Bibles that the ushers handed out. Uh, go ahead and turn to that now, and just before we dive in to it together, let's, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, this letter uh, that has been preserved in the, in the pages of the Bible Uh, We thank you for the way that it spoke to uh, its first listeners, and especially for the way that it has continued to speak. And so we pray, Lord, this morning as we look at this passage that you would uh, open our ears, uh, give us minds to understand what is being said here. Uh, Most importantly, give us hearts to receive what is being said here. And we pray that that your words, Lord, in these pages would be uh, transforming for us. That we would leave this place different than when we came in this morning. And we pray all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, in chapter 2, Paul really begins to establish that in our baptism into Christ... We have, been, uh, we, we have died, we've been buried, and raised to new life in him. Uh, the, the water baptism that, that believers are commanded uh, to go through, that we sometimes get to witness here, that water baptism is a symbol of a spiritual reality that we have died, been buried, and raised to new life in Christ. And in the opening verses of chapter 3, Paul Uh, sort of recaps and then provides a a transition into the practical living out of this spiritual reality. So let's uh, look at the first four verses here. Uh, Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. So Paul is saying here that uh, if everything that I've been telling you in the first two chapters of my letter is true, and it is, then you've got to start thinking differently. You've got to stop thinking that this is all there is to life, uh, what the world has to offer. You've got to stop thinking like that because you actually are so much more than that now, right? There's there's an old saying, maybe some of you have heard it uh, before, that some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, Ever ever heard that before? I don't actually know if I've known anyone that was that heavenly-minded. But um, what's important is that that's not what Paul is saying when he says set your minds on things above. He's not he's not calling for um, this pie in the sky, no earthly good kind of behavior. And we're going we're to see that uh, in, in the next verses. Uh, Colossians 3 really uh, begins speaking into the in-between that we all live in now. Uh, some Bible scholars call it the already and not yet uh, era of the, of the kingdom of God. Um, what does that mean? Well, for instance, in verse 1, Paul says that we have already been raised with Christ, right? But then he says in verse four that one day Christ will return and will be revealed with him in glory. Um, there are aspects of our life in Christ that are already true, and there are other aspects of our life in Christ that are not fully realized yet. And so Paul is calling the Colossian Christians to live their lives in the not yet, where where we live now, as if all of this was already true and and being realized in us. He wants them and us to keep striving in the here and now to live as the new person that that Christ has made us into. And and much of the, the rest of the letter is going to explore what that looks like. So Paul is about to list a number of vices that he... Beliefs have have no place in the lives of people whose identities are are in Christ. Now, because a lot of us probably came from legalistic church uh, traditions, uh, I want to remind us that, that Paul um, Paul's point here is not to say that that if we behave a certain way, then God will like us more and let us into His heaven. That's sort of how legalism works, right? If you uh, stay away from these bad things and do these good things, then God will like you, right? That is not what Paul is saying at all. Paul's point here is that we are already, already in Christ who is seated in heaven. Uh, the old person, the old dean, is dead. Dead. And the new person has been born. The new Dean, the new Carmen, the new Lois, the new May. Okay? That's already happened. And so that new person who is in Christ shouldn't behave like the old dead person did. That's his point here. Okay? So Paul's list of vices starts with sins of desire, sexual sins. Uh, Look at verse 5. He says, Therefore, because you, you have died and been raised to new life in Christ, therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. So Paul's list begins uh, with uh, the term we've translated, sexual immorality. And the Greek word underneath uh, that is porneia. It's the word we get pornography from. Um, However, Bible scholars think that Paul probably isn't referring to pornography here. He's probably referring uh, back to the Old Testament uh, uh, laws regarding sex. In other words, porneia here is not referring to pornographic images. Porneia is referring to sexual relations outside of the covenant bonds of marriage. The, the, the Bible is really clear in both Old Testament and New that any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. And it's not because God is a killjoy. It's because that's not what sex was created for. And, and when we take it outside of God's intended purposes, we will be unsatisfied. Unsatisfied. And, and as we will see as this, these few verses move on, uh, we will, it's like a drug that we crave more and more of, and it never satisfies. That's what happens when we take it outside of its intended purposes. So uh, Paul's use of porneia here probably doesn't refer to pornography, but the other words that he uses certainly include that, okay? Okay. Impurity, lust, evil desires, all of those are are words that address sexual images and and sexual thoughts that the, the person who has been raised with Christ have no business being involved with. Now, the fifth item in Paul's list seems almost like it's in the wrong place, right? Like all of a sudden, Paul has changed topics. Uh, All of a sudden, he's talking about greed. What what does that have to do with sexual sins? Um, I don't think he's switched topics. I think he's talking about the same thing. David Garland says that greed refers to the proud and ruthless belief that everything, including other people, exists for one's own personal amusement and purposes you know that really summarizes the whole list of these sexual sins, doesn't it? Our views um, in in culture around us, our views of sex have have devolved into something. Well, think of think of how people talk about it. Sex is something we have. Sex is something we get. Right. And this is so far from what God's intent was for sex from the beginning. He, he intended sex to be this expression of intimacy in the context of marriage, of, the, of that covenant of marriage. And, and I was thinking about this, and I've, I've sort of made fun of this language before, but in one sense, the old King James language uh, of, of so-and-so knew his wife, that she could it actually gets it right. A, a knowing, an intimacy uh, that, that sex is an expression of, right? It's supposed to be this intimate knowing. Well, the word that Paul uses to describe how to get rid of these sinful sexual desires is really strong, isn't it? Uh, he says, put them to death, kill them. Murder them. Paul's not calling for better behavior here. Um, uh, That old person with his or her old way of thinking uh, can't just be, you know, hidden away. It needs to be killed. A a A final death sentence to that. Again, Paul's not just calling for better behavior, which which just ends up being a thin veneer of of acting better. It's it's not going to do the job. It's not going to get rid of that. Uh, Marianne Williamson once said that when you ask God into your life, you think he is going to come into your spiritual house, look around, and see that you need a little cleaning up. And so you go along for the first six months, thinking how nice life is now that God is in the house. And you look out the window one day, and you see that there's a wrecking ball outside. It it turns out that God actually thinks your whole foundation is shot, and you're going to have to start over from scratch. Again, uh, David Garland says it this way, Paul is saying that the whole foundation must be replaced and the sooner we allow God to tear it down and start the rebuilding process, the sooner we avert the catastrophe of having the whole house come crashing down around our heads when the weight of sin becomes too much. And this is This this really describes verse 6 where Paul says that because of these things, God's wrath is coming against disobedient people. Now now stay with me on this. In Paul's longest uh, passage on God's wrath in Romans 1, he describes it as God giving them over to their own sinful desires. This isn't a picture of an angry God who's out to get people who mess up, right? His wrath is his willingness to let people have what they say they want. If they want a life of destructive behavior, he'll let them go ahead with that, even if it kills them. And I think this is really what Paul is saying here. Kill these sins off before they kill you because that's, that's what's going to happen. Well, that's Paul's list of sexual sins or sins of desires, but it's not the end of his list of vices. His second list is focused on sins that cause disunity among the body of Christ. Uh, so after reminding the Colossians that they used to participate in these very same things, he says in verse 8, but now you must also put away all of the following anger, rage, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. All of these things are sins against the unity of the body of Christ. And, 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 Paul sort of underscores that in verse 11 where he says, Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Friends, we live in a dog-eat-dog world where people will do anything to get ahead. Uh, Racism, economic and social class distinctions, political differences, even religious views... Um, are, are dividing people um, maybe more than ever. I don't know. And, and they're causing them to do and say horrible things against each other. But the church, Christ's body, is supposed to be different. Bible scholar Edward Schweitzer, who's gone to be with the Lord writes that he doesn't think Paul is suggesting here that Christians won't ever get angry. I love how he says this. He says all Christians, if they are humans and not vegetables, will get angry. Schweitzer believes that what Paul is talking about is this unchecked or gnawing or anger, anger that is allowed to grow and fester. He says, unchecked anger grows into outbursts of rage, and rage can turn into malice, which seeks out how to do evil or or harm another person. And and slander and gossip are one of the ways that malice is acted out against another person. Very interesting to me. The Greek word under uh, our English word, slander, I know most of you don't know Greek, but I'm going to use a Greek word that I think you'll understand blasphemia. Really? When we slander another person, we're speaking against a person who is created in the image of God, and God takes it personally. It's blasphemy. Paul's progression of sins against the unity of the body continues with abusive language and lying to one another. And he says that all of these things are to be put away. We we need to get rid of them. These are the tools that that the world uses in its relationships. The tools that the world uses to manipulate and get ahead. But they have no place in the Christian community. Now, unfortunately, you and I both know happens more often than it ought, right? All of these things work against the unity of the body. They're divisive. They divide rather than bringing unity. And the New Testament actually has very, very strong words about uh, divisions in the church. It, it, it can't be. Titus 3.10 says, uh, warn a divisive person twice and then have nothing to do with them. It's harsh, right? But that's how much uh, Jesus wants to see unity among us. And we have to protect it. Well, uh, after, after killing or putting away these 11 things, sexual sins and then sins against the unity of the body, uh, Paul moves to virtues that we are to be putting on, uh, Christ-like virtues. Verse 12, Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, clothe yourselves with heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, So you must also forgive. Above all, put on love the perfect bond of unity. So Paul gives a list of six virtues that the person who has been chosen and and loved by God should wear sort of like, sometimes I imagine it this way, sort of like a uniform that sets them apart from the other team, right? We look different and people recognize, oh, they're different. Right, uh, the, the, the chosen, holy, loved person is the same person that, that he talked about earlier on, the, the person who has died with Christ and been raised to new life. Uh, the, the, their old life is gone and their real life is now in Christ. So we could say like Paul did in verse 1 of chapter 3, if you have been raised with Christ, then wear the same virtues. As Christ, So what are those? Well, he lists them. Compassion. Did you know over 90 times in the Old Testament, God is described as compassionate. Over 20 times in the New Testament, Jesus is either described as compassionate or commands compassion. Compassion is the first and most often repeated character trait of God. He expects his children to be compassionate too. Someone once said that if you are ever wondering how you should um, uh, treat another person, how you should engage with them, err on the side of compassion. Err on the side of being like God. Kindness, second character trait that uh, we are to put on. It's also actually the second most... Uh, quoted character trait about God, about who he is. Kindness is the, is the working out of that heartfelt compassion that we are to put on. The, the word for kindness here has its root in the word for grace. In other words, as if we have been shown grace, we must show and, and do grace to others. Humility, the third piece of clothing we are to put on. Humility is the moral virtue of choosing to renounce my rights and status in order to serve others. That's what Philippians 2 shows us. Humility checks our incessant quest to attain honor and and rise uh, above the pecking order, right? Again, Philippians 2 tells us to have that same mindset of humility that Jesus did. Added to compassion, mercy, and humility, we are to put on gentleness. Gentleness. Sometimes gentleness is, is thought of as weakness. The Greeks and the Romans certainly thought of it in that way. The word actually means, though, strength under control. And the, and the picture that comes to my mind is a huge draft horse that, that we see at the, at the state fair when we go down there. They're, they're massive. They, they could crush just about anything if they wanted to. So strong. And yet they're gentle. And, and oftentimes with just a verbal command, they can be controlled by their master. Fifth virtue we're to wear is patience with one another. Patience. It's that willingness to endure wrongs without seeking revenge. One commentary said it's long-suffering in the face of insult or injury. As we move into verse 13, uh, some scholars think that this is a, a, more of an explanation of what patience looks like. Uh, bearing with one another and forgiving one another just as God has forgiven us. So compassion, mercy, humility, gentleness, patience. And then the sixth virtue is in verse 14. Above all, Paul says, put on love. Because love is the glue that holds it all together. Some commentators say that love is the overcoat or the, or the belt that holds all of these other pieces of clothing together. This, this love isn't just a warm, fuzzy, emotional feeling, right? It's agape love. It's a love that only comes from God. It's, it's the unconditional love that God has for us that therefore we are to have for one another. It's an unconditional love that chooses what's best for the other person. Now I want to go back to verse eleven. I mentioned it earlier, but I want to remind you of what kinds of people were in this community of faith that that Paul was writing to. Uh, Paul says that in this community, uh, there is no longer uh, Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all, and in all. It seems that here in this this one church in Colossae, they had a mix of of different ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, language backgrounds. Barbarian, for for example, this is a language one. Barbarians were called barbar because their language sounded like gibberish to the Romans. And so they made fun of them. Bar, 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 bar. That's where it comes from. It was a racial slur. It was it was uh, degrading how how some some people talked. They didn't talk right. Scythians were considered some of the most ruthless pagans on the on the northern Black Sea. And, and among the fellowship here in Colossae were slaves and slave owners diverse, diverse group of, of people. And Paul says that none of these distinctions matter because Christ is all and is in all of these people. How amazing would it be to be a part of this kind of a community where, where people who were so different from each other found unity in Christ and and treated one another with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness, patience, regularly forgave one another because of their agape love for one another. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a community like that? A church like that? It's possible. It's doable. It really is but not on our own. Again, we can't mistake what Paul is saying here for what the world calls tolerance. Um, everybody just getting along, every, everyone being nice, right? Why can't we just do that? Well, the reason we can't just do that is because it doesn't work. It never has and it never will. We, we don't have it in ourselves to really do that. So how do we achieve it? Paul began by saying that this can only happen with people who have died to themselves and are, are raised to new life in Christ. And at the end of the passage, I think he gives us three ways that we can discover this unity. If, if you're a note taker, uh, capture these, because I think these are critical. First off, verse 15 He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. For you were in fact called as one body to this peace and be thankful. So the first thing we have to do is let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Christ is our peace because through him we have been reconciled uh, to God and reconciled to one another. In fact, he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. Paul says here that we have been called. We have been called. Carmen talked about calling. We have been called, every one of us, as a whole body, into this peace, to live in this peace. The word that Paul uses for rule is a, is a word that means umpire or referee. The peace of Christ calls balls and strikes. It calls fair balls and foul balls. It calls safe and out. It's got a rule. The peace of Christ that has, has brought us into this family has to continue to call the shots in how we behave with one another. And then Paul says that we're to be thankful. I'm not sure if if thankfulness is a result of letting the peace of Christ rule or if thankfulness helps to cause it. Either way, thankfulness is, is a part of it here. So we have to let the peace of Christ rule. Secondly, the way we become a unified community is by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that when Paul uses uh, the, the phrase word of God or word of Christ, he's not limiting that to the Bible. It certainly includes that, but it, i say it this way. This verse is not a verse about Bible memorization. As good as that is, that's not what this is saying. We have a number of First Nations people who regularly worship with us, and some of them use a First Nations translation of the New Testament. This is how verse 16 reads in that version. Let the message of the chosen one become a deep watering hole inside you. It will then become a refreshing spring as you teach and guide one another with wisdom and understanding. Paul is saying that the message about Jesus needs to take up residence inside of us. It's it's a well of life, a well of life-giving water, as, as the First Nations translation says. Who Jesus is and what he has done need to be at the center of our conversations and our songs, of our words and our worship, And when Jesus is at the center, the message of Jesus is at the center of those conversations, you know what? There's not really room for the other kinds of negative sinful talk that Paul mentioned earlier. It it, it pushes it out of the way. And it's interesting here that gratitude shows up again, isn't it? Thanksgiving and, and gratitude seem to be at the center of this healthy faith community that Paul is talking about. Again, we can't become this on our own. It's Christ Jesus who creates this kind of community. So we have to let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. We have to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And the third way we become this kind of faith community is by doing all that we do in the name of Christ. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now let me ask you, what kinds of things can you do in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you, can you be involved in illicit sexual practices? Can, is it possible to look at porn in the name of Jesus? I once heard of a a youth pastor decades ago who said he watched X-rated movies so he could relate to the struggles of the young men he was working with. Excuse me. You can't do that in the name of Jesus. Everything you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Can you lash out at someone in anger in the name of the Lord Jesus? No. No. Can you rage against somebody in the name of Jesus? Can you gossip about others in the name of Jesus? No. You can't. But how about having compassion on someone? Can you do that in the name of Jesus? Always, yeah. How about being humble, and gentle, forgiving? Can that be done in the name of Jesus? Always, always. Friends, we should all, all of us, ask ourselves throughout the day: Is this action? Is are, are these words able to be done? Be spoken? In the name of Jesus, and if not, we got no business doing or saying those things. do you see and notice again verse seventeen, the mention of thankfulness it, it seems here that the life of the person who is in Christ must be marked by thankfulness and and, and whether Thankfulness causes us to do things in the name of Jesus, or whether it is the result of doing everything in the name of Christ. I don't know. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. But it certainly is evidence of it, right? They're both present in that healthy Christ community. So, how are we doing? Um, It's been another long passage this week. I I hope, though, there have been some handles for you to to grab onto. Paul says that we've been raised with Christ and we have no business living like the dead people we once were. And so he lists a number of behaviors that we need to kill off or be done with. And then he lists a number of virtues that we should get dressed in every day. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and most of all, love. And then at the end of this long section, Paul gives us three ways to grow into that kind of community. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and be grateful. And let the name of Christ determine everything you do and say. Oh, and, and be thankful. These things all have an individual aspect to them, just like our faith in Christ has a, has a personal and individual aspect to it. But the goal here is not just personal. Uh, Paul's words here in, in chapter 3 are for this Christian community, for the church. And so I ask you again do you want to be a part of that kind of a church? I do I really do and so I wonder if we can just covenant together to each of us do our part to to put off the old person and put on the person who is in Christ so that he can build us into that kind of church it's not going to be easy there's a lot of killing that has to happen in all of our lives. It's hard. But through the resurrection power of Christ in us, I I firmly believe it's possible. Let's pray. Jesus, again, thank you for all that you have done to bring us out of the darkness and into the light, out of death and into life. And we ask, Lord Jesus, for your, your help, uh, for your Spirit's power to kill off, to put off the things that don't belong and to put on and, and live into the things that do. May your peace rule in our hearts. May your word become a a life-giving well inside of us. And may we do everything we do and say in the name of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.